Peace We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and more. Amanda Ripley is a New York Times bestselling author and an investigative journalist. Her books include High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, The Smartest Kids in the World, and How They Got That Way and The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why. She writes for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Politico, and other outlets. And she hosts the Slate podcast, How To. Previously, Ripley spent a decade writing about human behavior for Time magazine in New York, Washington, and Paris. Our other guest is Liz Hume, the executive director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. She is a conflict expert and has more than 20 years of experience in senior leadership positions in bilateral, multilateral institutions and NGOs. She has extensive experience in policy and advocacy and overseeing sizable and complex peacebuilding programs in conflict-affected and fragile states in Asia. Eastern Europe, and Africa. From 1997 to 2001, Liz was seconded by the U.S. Department of State to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and in Kosovo as the Chief Legal Counsel and Head of the Election Commission Secretariats. In these positions, she was responsible for developing the legal framework and policies in support of the implementation of the Dayton Peace Accords and UN Security Council Resolution 1244 for Kosovo. After 9-11, Liz worked for the International Rescue Committee in Pakistan and Afghanistan, where she established and managed the Protection Department for Afghan Refugees and Returning IDPs. Liz holds a BA from Boston College, a JD from Vermont Law School, and a master's in negotiation, conflict resolution, and peacebuilding from California State University, Dominguez Hills. She lives in Falls Church City, Virginia, with her husband and twin daughters. This episode of the Peace We Build It podcast addresses how we can change up new narratives within the peacebuilding field based upon narrative research that provides a new way of explaining to the American public what peacebuilding is and why it matters. How do we change the discourse around peacebuilding and ultimately change public mindsets? We need to reframe the narrative that peacebuilding is active and very much within the realm of possibility. What we have discovered is that the most effective narrative about peacebuilding is a narrative that creates the conditions for peace through ongoing work to build bridges across social divides. This narrative provokes a sense of responsibility for peace that can be shared by changing the narrative to hope, dignity, and new possibilities. 
This podcast conversation features award-winning investigative journalist Amanda Ripley in conversation with Liz Hume, who will discuss this new reframing and its research and why it is so critical to human beings in the field of peace building who are creating the possibility of peace. Welcome to the Peace We Build It podcast, Amanda Ripley, and welcome back, Liz Hume. And we will go to Liz Hume, who is the Executive Director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. And let me start with the first question, Liz. The White House recently announced uh, that the United We Stand Summit on September 15th, which will focus on countering the effects of hate-fueled violence on our democracy and public safety and honor Americans who are working to bring their communities together across lines of racial, religious, political, and other differences. We know that violence and violent conflict is closely tied to rhetoric and narratives, and that the Alliance for Peacebuilding recently released a report in partnership with Frameworks Institute, Partners Global, and Humanity United on effective framing and communication strategies for peace and peacebuilding. So Liz, can you tell us about the peace-building field's work on reframing peace and peace-building narratives and why it's so important? So thanks, Tanya. So right now, as we're talking about peace and peace-building, people are probably thinking about a peace sign or something passive or the absence of conflict. That peace just happens when there's no conflict and that it only involves resolving conflicts or world peace is naive. I mean, we all see the movies where in a beauty contest, right? That's always the answer. You want world peace. So not that it's a joke or that it's naive, but people really think of it as this passive thing. So what the peace building field is really talking about is we have to reframe the narrative. We have to rebrand it so that peace building is seen as active and also very much possible. We also know that crisis messaging shuts people's brains down and they get overwhelmed and they think, well, you can't do anything about it anyways. And what we really found is some of the most effective narratives for Americans, this research was done here in the US. So for Americans, is that some of the most effective narratives about peace building emphasize creating the conditions for peace, which include you know, working towards it, building bridges. So if you think about the bridge, you have to actually build the bridge and you have to maintain the bridge and you have to meet in the middle and really getting across those social divides, but through action. And we've seen this overseas. Many of our members at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, Mercy Corps, for example, in Ethiopia, they were working in uh, a community and doing a lot of peacebuilding work, reconciliation work, getting communities to work together, to build projects. And then a drought came through this area. And the communities that where they were working on peacebuilding issues and, and peacebuilding uh, projects were able to get over the drought without conflict. And in the communities where they hadn't worked, broke out in conflict. And so I think that's the really important piece of it is for us to be able to explain what we're talking about, what it is, reframe it, rebrand it so that people understand, like everybody knows what the Diabetes Association is or Worldwide Wildlife 
fund, even though they might not have diabetes or they you know, have never done any kind of conservation with animals. They know what it is and they support it and they know it's possible. And that's really where we need to get to in the peace building field. Thanks, Liz. That's a nice segue into my next question for Amanda. Who knows the media landscape extremely well? You recently authored an op-ed published by the Washington Post in which you told your secret that you had cut back on your news consumption after you felt like you were, quote, marinating in despair, unquote. You went on to say that there is something wrong with the way the news is delivered and framed. It is not designed for the human brain, these waves of crises. Even when things get better, when the COVID cases plummeted, when Congress actually acts, when a police department actually gets reformed, when greenhouse gases get cut, the framing of the news doesn't change. It remains the same, vibrating with anxiety, reflexively disappointing, rarely delighted. It's like that friend you have who always sees the worst in everything, You go out for coffee and you feel empty afterwards. Finally, you stop going. Amanda, can you talk more about how the media's discussion of peace, security, violence, and conflict is creating this sense of despair? And what can we do about it? Thanks, Tanya. It's really good to be here with you and with Liz. I found the Frameworks report to be really fascinating and helpful. I think a lot about words and framing and the stories we tell It's kind of like the only thing I think about most days. So I'm glad to be here with you talking about this. I think, you know, one of the things I struggle with myself is how to talk about political conflict in the United States in ways people can hear. Because I, you know, I spent way too long as a journalist thinking that, you know, I could just line up the facts and make them look pretty and tell compelling stories and that would do it. But I've learned that. If you're not speaking a language people can hear, then it really doesn't matter. You know, you're just kind of writing words on a page. So part of making difficult, potentially threatening content hearable and usable, right, is to understand what humans need. Yes, sometimes we need fear and sometimes we need outrage. Absolutely. And anger for sure. And to turn anger into action. And to turn fear into a movement, into progress, we also need other things. And the research on this is really pretty clear. Like it's not nearly as fuzzy as I guess I would have thought. But for example, humans need hope. They need hope to get up in the morning and do things. And it doesn't need to be the kind of hope that is false hope or sort of fluffy hope. In fact, Quick story, I was recently interviewing a physician who teaches physicians how to communicate bad news, trying to figure out what could journalists learn, right? And likewise, what could peace builders learn? How do we convey difficult, serious news in ways that will be helpful to people? Because right now, 42% of Americans say they are sometimes or often actively avoiding the news. Because what we've been doing is for a lot of people, roughly 100 million, not working, right? For different reasons. Okay. So here's what he said. I thought it was so fascinating. He said, you know, 
usually when people need hope, it's not that they need to be cured. A lot of times doctors are resistant to this idea of hope because they're afraid of false hope, of giving patients false hope. And journalists likewise are afraid of false hope or glossing things over or you know, rose-colored glasses. And what he said is, no, 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 actually people have a lot of hope. What he said is hope is a many splendored bird. And he said, sometimes it's, I hope to live the last days of my life relatively pain-free and at home. Sometimes it's, I hope I can go on this one last family vacation. And yeah, I hope I live forever. Absolutely. And I hope I can help my family set up my affairs so that this isn't worse than it has to be after I'm gone. So those are all kinds of hope, right? And that was really helpful for me to hear and and think about how does that apply to communicating news about threats to democracy, for example? How can we give people hope without glossing over reality? It's a really valid, very key point about the future as we all stare into the abyss, which you have articulated so well in your writing of this op-ed. Liz, how does what Amanda had to say resonate with the new research? Oh, it's spot on. Because I think what she's saying, or what I'm getting out of it, is we always start with the crisis messaging. And you'll even see it in a lot of the things that AFP has put out or our members have put out or the United Nations put out. It's always like, you know, the sky is falling. Everything's horrible. Da, 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 da. Oh, I think we can, you know, we can do this. Like, let, let's all work together to overcome this. And it's not that you gloss over that and say, this isn't happening. I mean, we're at a 30-year high in global violent conflict, and that was even before the war in Ukraine. But thinking about, well, what can we do about it? What's working? What's possible? And I think that that's what always gets, you know, you start with the crisis messaging and you've already like scared people and then you never get to the, well, this is what's working and this is what we can do about it. And that's, I think, a really big part of the missing piece of all of this. Yes, indeed. I think as we watch our leaders, you keep waiting and hoping that they are going to offer a way forward and not disabuse you of the notion that it's not going to be difficult. And speaking of which, Amanda, you also recently released a book entitled High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, which tells the story of people drawn into high conflict who ultimately found ways to transform that conflict into something good and positive. First, what is high conflict and how can we take the same approach in the media and in our narratives around peace and security? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, I wrote high conflict because I was feeling so hopeless, right? Back to our point about hope, uh, when I would read about you know, the partisan divisions, racial divisions, extremism, all these things, it just felt like we were trapped. And usually I found that when you feel trapped, sometimes it's true, right? But, you know, sometimes it's because some of your assumptions are not right. And so I spent a few years just following people 
like Liz, like many of your colleagues who understand conflict intimately in all different settings, right? Whether they're conflict zones, war zones, but also, you know, gang violence, um, divorce law, all kinds of places where people are intimately familiar with conflict, especially the kind of sticky, intractable kind of conflict. And the whole point was to find examples of people who have shifted out of that kind of really toxic conflict into a healthy kind of conflict. And you can find them, as you know, and they have things in common, right? So I ended up following a former gang leader in Chicago and an activist in England, a politician in California, a former guerrilla member in Colombia. And there were really striking similarities in what happened to all of them and what they did, right, to make that shift and how their societies or communities helped them along the way. But to answer, you know, the, the first most obvious question, I mean, high conflict, some people call it intractable conflict, some people call it malignant conflict. I call it high conflict because I feel like it's the least overwhelming word. <laughs> you know, it makes it sound like there is hope, which there absolutely is. But it's the kind of conflict that escalates to a point where it becomes conflict for conflict's sake. It becomes about winning. It feels like the other side is so insane and dangerous that the only choice is total annihilation. It's us versus them, right? And in that kind of conflict, it's very magnetic. It's very hard to get out once you're in. You make a ton of mistakes. Usually, I mean, the most heartbreaking thing is that in every high conflict I've ever witnessed or studied, you end up harming the thing you went into the conflict to protect whether it's your children in a high-conflict divorce or your country in high-conflict politics or your values, right? Those are the things that end up getting harmed and pretty much everyone suffers to different degrees in high-conflict. Liz, what's the peace community reaction to this? The ideas that Amanda's just outlined in your interpretation, in your work? Well, I mean... This is the work we're doing, right? It's trying to understand it, to understand conflict and also understand it through brain science. And it's not always logical. If you haven't read the book, read the book. It's so great. And the stories in there are phenomenal. And my favorite story was the, was it, was it the city council person in California, Amanda? Yeah, yeah. Gary Friedman, who was a conflict expert who ran for local office. Yeah. <laughs> okay. First of all, I want you to tell that story because it's amazing. And it shows you how easy it is to get pulled into it and that, you know, we're not always rational. And we're trying to do that here in the US. We're trying to pull back the layers to understand what actually is driving conflict in the United States. So it's understanding it and being responsible with that information. And so people can empathize as well, regardless of who you are and what side you're on, like having empathy. So having empathy and understanding it, what can you do, you know, to build peace? What makes conflict so different today is that we have this 24-hour news cycle. We have different types of media, you know, going back, you know, before Ronald Reagan, you know, you had the fairness doctrine and, you know, Tanya, when you and I grew up, what we had three major <laughs> networks. Yeah. yeah. And, and it wasn't 24 hours and we weren't being bombarded on it and it wasn't coming in through um, social media. So, you know, I think 
the landscape has changed and it has its, its ability to do good. And it also has its ability to be part of the conflict system and perpetuate it and fuel it. So what is this story about the California City Councilman, Amanda? Share that yeah, with us. Yeah, it's, oh man, it's such a good story. Thank you for inviting me to share it. I mean, Gary Friedman is a world-renowned conflict expert based in California. He's helped literally thousands of clients work through really ugly conflicts from divorce to labor walkouts, teaches negotiation at Harvard and Stanford. He's really, I mean, truly one of the wiser people I know. And so a few years ago, it made a certain kind of sense when Gary's neighbors asked him to please run for office in his tiny town in Northern California, you know, hoping to change politics and make it less toxic and more inclusive. And as it happens, as he puts it, it took him about an eighth of a second before he got sucked into high conflict himself in his tiny town, in his own little community where he'd raised four children, a place he loves. As he puts it, he lost two years of his life to like really what seemed to be, you know, pretty small political feuds in his neighborhood. Um, he fell right into the conflict trap despite everything he knew. And there are different reasons for that. But the, the reason I kind of went long and deep on this story is because it shows how we, like Liz was saying, I mean, we are all susceptible to high conflict, especially today when we've designed a bunch of institutions to really celebrate high conflict and conflict entrepreneurs. So to his credit, though, I mean, the other reason the story is so powerful, I think, is that Gary realized after two years of suffering, <laughs> he realized what had happened. And he very bravely and painstakingly excavated himself out of high conflict and built good conflict. He didn't quit. He didn't change his mind. He didn't give up, right? He didn't move, though he thought about doing all of those things. <laughs> but he stayed in office and he found a way to fight for what he cared most about without demonizing his opponents and making everything worse. And you know what? Way more got done in those two years than in the two years he was in high conflict. Um, so it wasn't an easy journey, but it is you know, yet another proof point that it is possible to do this. So how do you define good conflict from bad? I'd like to hear your ideas on that. Yeah, well, I'm curious what you all think. I mean, for me, good conflict is the kind of thing where there's movement, you know, so you feel, yes, you experience anger and frustration and sadness and fear. All of that is, you know, useful, right? Um, but also you might have flashes of curiosity and then back to anger and then maybe a flash of understanding or even humor, God forbid, right? And then back to anger and frustration. So there's like this galaxy of emotions and you can see this in the data. There's a place that Columbia University, led by Peter Coleman, called the Difficult Conversation Lab, where um, they sort of record and analyze 500 conversations between people who disagree profoundly on big controversial issues. And this is what they find is that some of these conversations, you know, are good conflict where, yeah, there are all those negative emotions and more. And people leave the lab more satisfied. They ask each other more questions. And then there are other conversations that are just kind of stuck in the same one or two negative emotions over and over and over, like the movie Groundhog's Day, just like the same back and forth. And there's a real feeling leaving the lab that you kind of feel worse than when you started. We've all had conversations like this, right? Or watched other people have fights like this where nobody's better off. You just feel kind of, you know, just 
dispirited and you haven't learned anything about yourself, the other person or the problem. So that's the distinction for me is that movement. Interesting. So Amanda, can you also talk about how media can end the cycle of pushing out exclusively despair and instead how can they inject hope? I found your comments about that in the op-ed very interesting. And thinking about that, because I know that would be a paradigmatic shift in the way newsrooms operate, the way they're actually set up to report. Shifting that, I think, is really a significant challenge, but also adding some agency that where people can actually feel they have some agency because of some hope and dignity to people who are many times sharing very personal stories or are entrapped in some terrible event that takes place that gets them into the media. And how can that be actually framed differently from a media perspective? Firstly, I just want to ask you that question firstly. Yeah. I mean, I I think I've spent the past year just trying to figure this out. Like, what would it look like if you design news for human consumption, right? Based on what we know about what people need to thrive. And also based on what you said about how the news has become, you know, aerosolized. It's everywhere. You can't avoid it. So given that, what should the news be doing? What should it be for? And yeah, it does seem like if you distill it down, all the research and and insight that I could find, there's three things missing. And you mentioned a couple of them, which is hope, agency, and dignity. And those are things people need, like biologically, they need those things. And I don't think that I always understood that in my own journalism. I don't think that most journalists even know that. So part of it is kind of that learning curve is figuring that out that, you know, just like in a restaurant, you know, David Bornstein, the co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, he said to me, you know, you're in the restaurant business, you're going to give people water, right? Because you understand human biology. It's not like, you know, the most thing you're most passionate about, but you're going to do that because it's essential. (laughs) And so it's weird that journalism has such a hard time understanding this. But to say what it would look like, I think maybe it's helpful to give an example. So last December, the New York Times, I don't know if you if you both saw this, but the New York Times published a big, you know, expensive multimedia project called Postcards from a World on Fire which was chronicling how climate change has altered life in 193 countries. So uh, if you go to this, you'll see that they created a graphic of the earth in flames spinning in space and the words Uh city swallowed by dust, human history drowned by the sea. Okay. So this was, I think, you know, a well-intentioned effort, like, Hey, everyone, we have got to wake up to climate change and do something. Right. That was, I think, the goal, but that is not designed for humans. Like, I don't know what species it's designed for, but it's not one I'm it's not what I'm familiar with. So at the same time, rather than just, you know, railing on the New York Times, because all media outlets do this to different degrees, consider another recent New York Times article, this one about a different hard problem, which is homelessness. So This story detailed how the city of Houston has moved 25,000 people experiencing homelessness into their own homes over the past 10 years. And it was like extensively reported. It was not, you know, a puff piece. Everything's great. You know, it was not an advertisement. (laughs) It was serious reporting. And when you read it, a couple things happen. First, you feel like a literal space open up in your chest. Like, oh, this is not 
necessarily an unsolvable tragedy. And the second thing that happens is you ask yourself, why isn't my city doing this? <laughs> right? So journalists really want to hold the powerful accountable. That is a driving value of the profession. And it turns out a really good way to do this is to spotlight and investigate responses to problems, not just problems, right? Because then you start asking, you, the reader or the voter, start asking why your city is not doing this thing. And if, if they're trying, how is it going? It raises all sorts of other important questions and just suddenly gives you a boost of energy because you realize it doesn't have to be this way. It's a really good contrast. And yes, I saw the climate change postcards and I went, click, get me out of here <laughs> as fast as possible because it was so horrible. Okay, uh, I didn't see it, but as uh, you were describing it, Amanda, I wanted to crawl under the table right now. <laughs> yeah, no, you got, I'm serious. It is really, oh, yes. it's painful, painful. And, and as you can imagine, New York being the largest city in the country where I live, homelessness is a huge issue now. And we keep moving people into hotels, families into hotels, and the city rents the hotels. But what we're finding out, because I work at two universities, is that the more likely you get a family moved into a home and get some sustainability with you know, boards under their feet. This is how you move people off the street. You get them personal services if they have drug issues or mental health issues. This actually is the beginning of the way to solve homelessness. It's through getting them into a home. It's key. And I actually think that now I feel much better about knowing about this and having read more and more about it from a research perspective, which brings me up to another question for you, Amanda, and that is, you know, we were just talking about just regular problems or challenges of everyday life, including climate change. What role can the peace building field and the public at large play in these efforts? Do you think maybe through their engagement with media, but there's probably lots of other ways where people can be engaged in addressing really tough problems in the peace building field, but doing it in a more positive way? Well, I loved in the, the frameworks report, the um, call for specific concrete examples you know, I think that is really important to visualize, just like the homelessness story in Houston, right? People need to visualize. We get a lot of incoming about what violence looks like, what partisan conflict looks like, what despair looks like, and that has its place. Like, it is important. And right alongside it, even better in the same story, it is really important to investigate, you know, with rigorous reporting where have things improved? What happened there, right? So I think you, you all know lots of examples like this. Um, for me, actually, one of the most helpful, enlightening things I do is talk to people who have worked in conflict in other countries, whether they're reporters in Sierra Leone or Colombia or people who do peace building in um, Nigeria, um, all, all over the world, or Northern Ireland. like. 
they can see what's happening in the United States with a clarity that I cannot. And so it's hugely valuable to get that perspective. That's something I think people who work in this space can do that no one else can do, right? Is tell those stories, spotlight those voices, help us see ourselves. Because none of this, you all know, none of this is unprecedented or unique. You know, we are not special. So when I talk to people who have fled Venezuela about what is happening here, it is at once chilling and also motivating, right? Because they have seen this movie before. They have seen what it looks like when people hector and harass cabinet appointees out of restaurants in an effort to shame them into being better. They have seen that that doesn't work, that it backfires, right? They have seen what happens when a conflict entrepreneur has a huge amount of power and tells you a story that explains away all of the rage and loneliness you're feeling. So it is really helpful, I think, to not just spotlight the responses and the improvements and progress, well, that's important, but also just the voices and perspectives of people who can see the patterns here and have ideas about how to cope with this ordeal and also how to be useful in this kind of climate. So just so happens that I'm a Balkan scholar and I actually met Liz in Sarajevo and talk about entrenched conflict. And I always am thinking, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, in the 1990s. And I'm still working on it 31 years later as a scholar and policy wonk. But I have to say, what's interesting to me, and of course, what you said, Amanda, is really true. We have so many people in the United States that have fled here from wars and, you know, were refugees when they came to this country. And so many of them, and also those of us who actually study autocracies and all the landmarks and earmarks of illiberalism, it's interesting to me that no American journalists ever interview these people. Like, there are lots of people in Astoria, Queens, from Mm. Bosnia. Uh, St. Louis has the largest population of Bosniaks anywhere in the world. They Mm. all fled genocide. They would have a lot to say about Mm. what is going on in America right now because they literally lived it. That's a great idea. I think we should do that. I mean, I often think about the the journalists who've worked in these places or the experts like yourself. But what you're saying is even more powerful. Like it's the people who fled who are now citizens watching this country go through all of these troubles, right? So that would be an incredibly powerful way to help us see ourselves. Um, I love that idea. I think some journalists might be kind of flipped out about it too when they put the mirror up and see what (laughs) comes back. Yes, yes. Kenya, I think... The one thing, though, we do have to do, because Americans Mm -hmm. still see themselves as very exceptional, and oh, that happens over there. And this is a lot of what the research is telling us, too. We have to bring it back so that you can touch and feel it. I mean, COVID is terrible, what has happened. But the one thing it has done is shown, I think, to a lot of Americans, our fragility and saw it, you know, at the community level, right? That 
American, you know, our trust has broken down, our social cohesion has broken down. And we know that the fragile state index tells us Mm -hmm. for the last 14 years, our social cohesion, our trust in each other has been declining. You know, when I was talking with some of the researchers over there, they're saying it's a freight train going in the wrong direction. And we saw how that contributed to conflict here in our own communities over conflict. Wearing a mask became, you know, a conflict, you know, school closures. And we know that countries that had high social cohesion did much better, especially in the beginning of COVID. It's also really important to bring it back at the community level, both positive and negative, like showing look, this is what conflict looks like here. And this is what, you know, you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It can be easily dismissed as sort of irrelevant or far away, or they're different than we are. Um, but the incredible asset that we have is that these folks are living here, right? In St. Yeah. Louis or Astoria or whatever. So they they kind of can see both places in a way that very unusual. So, but yeah, no, gotta, that's gotta, my point. Yeah. They have to tie it back. Tie here. it back. Right. Right. Well, I would say, as you know, Liz, I mean, this most recent research, and you've been really invested in talking about how it really affects people's brains, but Robert Putnam predicted this in 2000 about bowling alone in America, and that I think he actually had a finger on it and saw it coming based upon these massive data sets he put together. And I would say that, you know, when people started voting against their own personal interests, the education gap and the lack of civic understanding of how our government works is also, I think, integral to our conflicts right now. But that being said, Amanda, I'd like to hear what you have to say about the fact that People will say that we shouldn't gloss over the severity of current threats to peace and security, I think especially here in America, and that it can be irresponsible to be overly optimistic. And what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think David Bornstein at the Solutions Journalism Network, who is somebody who has done a lot of really good work on training journalists to do this better, he says, you know, look, let's start by asking ourselves a question, which is, what is missing that is preventing our community from making progress on whatever the problem is? So in this case, you know, conflict, violent conflict, extremism, what is missing? Is it that there's not enough stories about the threat that people don't know about the danger, that people aren't aware that there's like really high levels of division in the United States? If so, then yes, do more of those stories, right? Most of the time, that is not what's missing. Most of the time, in most places, what's missing is hope, agency, and dignity. So there is a real place for those stories right alongside fear, threats, and outrage. They have to be intertwined. And Look, every story I've ever done, and I've done a lot of scary stories about terrible, terrible things all over the world. Every single time, there are flickers of dignity, agency, and hope. You know, David was telling me how 
At the height of the conflict in Syria, some Syrian journalists reached out to the Solutions Journalism Network, which is headquartered in New York, and said, could you do a training for us? And he said, I'd love to, but, you know, there's a war. Like, what is the, <laughs> what solutions? Like, that just felt, you know, impossible. And they said, are you kidding? Like, all the time, we need to find ways to adapt and live and survive on the ground. And people are incredibly creative. And those are stories that we need to tell. So even in Syria, there are stories of hope, agency, and dignity. And they did do that training. And, and those stories continue to be produced in Syria. So, you know, if Syria can do it, then surely, you know, New Jersey reporters can do it. I mean, my God, you know what I'm saying? Like, really, things can get worse and they probably will. So let's do what we can to tell a fuller story. And you know what came out of Syria is a lot of stories around the white helmets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was really powerful that, you know, people, you know, were, you know, be a white helmet, right? And, And that came out a lot from the Syria media. Yeah. And for people who don't know, the white helmets were the Syrian civil defense, right? Um, so it sort of stepped yeah. in a volunteer organization uh, that stepped into the void. Yes. I have to say that one of, one of the things I'm inspired about in the Ukraine war are the women journalists over there. They are incredible. And one of them, every Friday, leads a Twitter conversation about the state of play. Every Friday, she hosts this. And they've been breaking stories that are just incredible. And as dire as it is, and it is very dire, they continue to be the voice that are reporting the truth. And it it is inspiring to me. Yeah, that's a great example. Just to add on that real quick is one of my favorite publications lately that I feel like is doing journalism for humans is the Christian Science Monitor. Mm -hmm. And their print edition uh, for this week is Grace and Grief. Even as war grinds on, Ukrainians find dignity in honoring those they've lost. So, you know, to your point, even at the darkest moments, it is important to see a fuller picture, which includes people finding dignity and showing each other dignity, even if it's not enough, right? Even if it doesn't change the, the tragedy. Yes. Yeah. So Liz, what are your thoughts about the peace building movement and about how they can address, you know, these terrible problems and yet try to inject some hope and optimism without disabusing people of the notion that it isn't going to be difficult? Well, I, I mean, I, I love the hope, agency, and dignity. I think that's what you're trying to build, right? You're trying to reduce and prevent conflict and build sustainable peace, right? That's the key to it, the building sustainable peace. And it doesn't mean, Amanda said this, it doesn't mean everybody gets along. You put two people in a room, they're going to have grievances. They might have some conflict. I mean, what you don't want is violent conflict. Conflict also, you know, not being afraid of it, recognizing that, you know, some of reforms take place in, you know, the heat of conflict. I mean, without conflict, you know, the three of us wouldn't have the right to vote in the United States, for example, right? The women's suffrage movement. So it happens, right? And there's good conflict or conflict that has to happen. But we also have to, um, you know, step away from the crisis messaging all the time and telling those stories of hope, agency, and dignity 
but also recognizing, you know, as one of my daughters, we joke, she always says this when she's in trouble that she needs to look inside herself and reflect. Um, <laughs> and it's become a joke in our house, but really truly. And I have to say, working on conflict in the United States has been incredibly humbling because it's so hard. And having humility and stopping before you react on something. Um, I have a a bunch of stories where, you know, on Facebook one time, somebody posted a story about how, you know, Republicans were going to college less. And, you know, people were writing terrible things. And I said, hey, hey, let's stop. Let's ask why. Why is this happening? You know, could it be that college is becoming too expensive? And at first I got railed on, you know, people started attacking me, you know, but then once you're like, no, wait, take a pause. Let's actually try to understand it. And not in a way where you, I know, Amanda, earlier you were talking about, you know, if you just say facts, but maybe if you just stop also and ask questions and try to understand where some of this is coming from and stop with the outrage so much. And I think that's part of your other piece of it, right? The fear, threat, and outrage. And think about, you know, hope, agency, and dignity. I just love that. And more importantly, what can you do to not perpetuate it, not to fuel it, and actually to actively build peace in your community, you know, in your state, in your country, globally. Another thing that the research really has told us is that interconnectedness is so key to people supporting this work here in the United States. So I just want to make an addendum to my previous remarks. I said women journalists. What I wanted to say is Ukrainian women journalists. Yeah, yeah that's what I meant. And I didn't say that affirmatively. I agree with everything you said, Liz. I would just also say, I think there's a broad recognition the closer you get to the problems in the United States is that it's grievance that is really fueling, I think, a lot of the polarity. And there's deep grievances. And a lot of it is around economics. And I also think if you look at the country more broadly, especially in the poor areas like West Virginia, because listen, you and I have had this conversation about the opioid crisis. I mean, it just wiped out so many communities, destroyed so many communities. And uh, when you think about this polarity that confronts us, a lot of it does emanate from grievance that I didn't have the opportunity to go to school or I had to work to support my family or I didn't get this opportunity or, you know, there was drug addiction in my family. I mean, it's broad. And I think the fragility that you mentioned is definitely very present in a great deal of American communities right now. And I don't think that we have a lot of empathy for them. I'll or understanding. Yeah, or understanding, you're, you're, yes. You're talking about fear. Actually, that's the way our human brains work. You know, it really is about fear. And it's logical, you know, to be afraid. But it's what you notice and what you do with it. And that is, I think, um, you know, going back to what Amanda was talking about, the media can either be, you know, kind of a force for good or they can fuel it. And that's, I think, 
you know, the real key question here. Yeah, I do agree with you. And Amanda, I know about the role of responsible media is very, very important. And that a lot of the irresponsibility probably moves very quickly in the news cycle because of all the social media uh, now at play. So just in thinking about all of these issues, about the idea of optimism and dignity, Later this month, Amanda, the International Peace Day will be observed on September 21st. And you mentioned uh, the Christian Science Monitor is a great example of a newspaper actually publishing in a different way, maybe even a more positive way. How can more newspapers and media outlets be more like the Christian Science Monitor? And is anyone else doing it well? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And at least do it for International Day of Peace. Just try it. <laughs> right. Just one day. Yeah. I mean, the cool thing is there are a lot of really creative people trying to do this better. Much of the innovation is at the local level at this point, and it's still not anywhere near what we need. And at the same time, a few places I love to kind of highlight. So thank you for asking me to do so are the Solutions Journalism Network, which I mentioned which has trained you know, over 25,000 journalists all around the world in how to make really rigorous reporting hearable for humans by focusing not just on problems, but also on responses to problems, even if they fail. And what they've found, which is really cool, is that audiences now will engage longer with uh, local TV news segments that are about efforts to solve problems than they will about stories on problems, um, which is new. I don't think that was always true. But I think because we're so beaten down, right, by all the problems, this is now refreshing. And it's like breaking news to hear of a community trying to solve problems. So that's really good because it suggests there is a financially viable way to do this from a journalism perspective if if the audience is there. Um, So the Solutions Journalism Network also has a solution story tracker where you can search any subject that you're passionate about or worried about and find examples of stories that do offer some glimmer of hope, agency, and dignity. The only other one I'd love to mention that I really haven't mentioned before, but should have, is um, there's something called the Progress Network, which was started a couple of years ago. They have a weekly newsletter that's really quite good. Um, and it's basically, it's run, it was founded by Zachary Carabell, and it tries to kind of aggregate a whole bunch of different interesting news to help us see a fuller picture of what is happening. Um, So it's the progressnetwork.org. And I find that newsletter, I get a lot of newsletters as we probably all do, but I find that one to be worth reading. Thank you very much. This has been a really interesting and informative conversation. And I think when we publish this podcast, we can maybe include some of those addresses for the Alliance for Peacebuilding uh, members. And I want to thank both Amanda and Liz for this great conversation. So with that, thanks for tuning into the Peace We Build It podcast. And thanks to our guests, Amanda Ripley, an award-winning investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author, and Liz Hume, the executive director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. The Peace We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peacebuilding 
based in Washington, D.C. Tanya Domi is the host and senior fellow for communications at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.